Welcome to The Apple Seed, where we bring you and your family great stories from great storytellers. On today's episode, a story from Sheila Arnold. All that he had done, thinking he was bringing glory to his family, he had forgotten his younger brother. And a story from Paul Strickland. It says, always burn incense as opposed to nonsense. I'm your host, Sam Payne. And today, our stories are about community, the people we choose to band together with, and the magic that's created as we try to ease each other's way. Our first story comes from Virginia storyteller Sheila Arnold. She was in the Appleseed studio recently, and she brought to us a powerful story that encapsulated so much of how we feel about storytelling, about how we care for one another. And we thought that it would be the perfect way to wrap up this season of the Appleseed. The story is called We Hold the Ropes. Here's Sheila Arnold. I'm leaving, and you can't stop me. I don't want to stop you. I'm just trying to help you understand. Just stay until the first rains come and then go. Oh, now you're going to tell me what to do, like you always do. I'm leaving. There's nothing you can do about it. The young man turned on hill and walked out of the home of the elders where they met in the day and talked with one another. And the young ones would come too when there was discourse and concern. And one of the elders yelled after the young man, young man, do not go so quickly. We will write letters of introduction for you. He turned around and came back to the tent. I need letters of introduction? I am not good enough myself? Is it because of my brother? Would he need letters of introduction? I don't need you. I am leaving now. And out he went, away from the elder home. All the elders turned to the older brother. The older brother shook his head, shrugged his shoulders, and went out to follow his brother. When he entered their own home, their small hut where they had been raised, but now their mother and father were gone, it was just the two of them. The older brother leaned his tall body against the side of one of the walls and looked at his younger brother. His younger brother knew how to pack to travel. He knew what to take with him. He had rope around his his waist and rope uh, on his side that he held. He had a pocket full of the right herbs that he would need, things he could cook along the way, and things that he could use to get the animal a, a knife and such that he could hunt with. Finally, he had it all together. Why are you going? Oh, now you have words for me. (laughs) You never had them before. Why are you so angry? What have I ever done to you? What have you done to me? What have you done to me? (sighs) You do not even know me. People do not even see me. They see the great hunter in you. You, you have forgotten I am even here. So you're mad because I am good. You're mad because I've been excellent. You're mad at this. You don't even see me now. I'm not angry. I'm going to be my own man. 
We'll wait until the first rains come. Don't be your own man and be foolish. <laughs> of course you would say that to me. Of course you would say that to me. Goodbye. And the young man went out, and he began his trek. The older brother stood against that wall, and then he began to pack himself. It was only about an hour later that the first rains began. The first rains were always very hard. And then there would be a pause in the rains. And then when it came back, oh, it was going to be there for days, but not ever as hard as that first rain. And when the first rains began, the older brother stood at the door at the ready, rope around him in his pack, all the things he needed, and he waited. And when the rain began to stop, that first hard, hard rain and everything had turned to mud. He stepped outside his own hut and he looked across at all the elders who lined the front of their own hut and they nodded and the older brother began to search. He called for him everywhere. He called off the sides of cliffs. He called down into holes. He called up into trees and he called and his brother, his younger brother was nowhere to be found. What was wrong with that boy? <laughs> what was wrong with him? He was the celebrity of all of those in the village. He was the one that led their family to be known as great. He was the one. <laughs> Women, they greeted him. Oh, that first day, that day that he went for the boar hunt and he brought back the biggest boar around his shoulders. Every father wanted to have him married to their daughter. Every one of them. <laughs> Wasn't he the one that brought their family joy? Wasn't he the one that showed what power they had? Wasn't he? And the older brother understood. Wasn't he? And all that he had done, thinking he was bringing glory to his family, he had forgotten his younger brother. He had stopped seeing him. He'd become a shadow, a shadow in his own shadow. And now he looked even more diligently, calling everywhere. He saw that large, large hole. That was the hole that he had gotten the boar out of. <laughs> that was the hole that began him not seeing his brother. I'm certain he was not down there, but he called anyway. Brother! Brother! I am here. He heard the faint sound. Brother, come, I have rope. I'll pull you up. I have hurt, I've hurt my ankle. I can't move. Brother, go on. The rains will come back and they will not stop. I deserve to be here. You do not deserve to be there. You are my brother. I am coming to get you. And so he tied his rope around a tree. He made sure it was tight. He threw the rope down. And the older brother began to climb down, hand over hand over hand. Then he saw his brother. His ankles certainly turned. Brother, I am so sorry. No, I am the foolish one. I thought I should be seen, should be important. I ran out knowing that this was the worst. I'm sorry for not respecting you, and I'm sorry for not respecting you, for not seeing you, for not treasuring our family. They hugged a moment. Climb on my back. And as the brother climbed on his back, the rain began. It was a soft rain at first. The rope became slippery. 
They would slip back down a little bit and more rain came down and got into the eyes and the younger brother was wiping the eyes of his older brother as they climbed up. And then suddenly there was a flash of lightning and a smell of smoke and they began to go back down in that hole. Something must have happened to the tree. Something must have happened and it broke and the rope was let go and they were going down into the hole and both of them knew no one would come to look for them, not in the rains. And as they were going down, realizing what was happening, holding to that rope with all hope against hope, they felt it. It stopped falling. And then they were being pulled. And then they heard a voice. We are here. We hold the ropes, the elders. And slowly by slowly, the elders pulled the ones who had gone into the pit. Sometimes the rope would lose a little bit, and they knew that is when another elder came in and would take the rope for a while and pull them up. And when they arrived at the top of that pit, the elders reached down to take their hands and they could see the rope burns around their arms. Many, many, many years later, the young man picked up his nephew and put his nephew on his shoulders. And they walked by the elder's hut. And the little boy said, Uncle, uncle, why? Why do the old men have burns on their arms? And the uncle said, For they are the ones that hold the rope, as one day I will hold the rope for you. Sheila Arnold with a story called We Hold the Ropes. Now, you know, you never know what kind of a memory a story is going to bring on. This one brought on a memory for me. Everyone has a thing. You know, mine is heights. I'm a first-class acrophobe. But I love to live in the world, and sometimes things in the world are high up, so I just got to kind of manage it. I want to descend the canyons and cross the bridges and hike the ranges, see the views. What would living in the world be without some of those things? But yeah, for an acrophobe like me, sometimes it's tricky. And what it means is that every once in a while, I find myself in a situation like the situation in which I found myself with a bunch of work colleagues one late summer day, hiking in Zion National Park in southern Utah. Zion National Park has plenty of hikes for the timid. Walks, really, along some of the most beautiful vistas on Earth. Zion National Park also contains some hikes that are not for the faint of heart, like the Angel's Landing Trail with drop-offs of more than a 1,000 feet on either side of the narrow trail. Well, this hike was somewhere in between. It's the Pine Creek Canyon Trail, and it's nothing like the Angel's Landing Trail, but it's tricky. There are parts of the trail where you have to swim. There are parts of the trail down which you have to rappel on ropes, and the hike culminates in a hundred-foot free-hanging rappel to the canyon floor. 
I know. I get it. Some of you eat 100-foot rappels for breakfast. Some of you are my friends and family members. And to you, I say, jump in the lake. A 100-foot fall will kill you even on a good day. And folks like me, well, let's just say that it's plenty. The hike was incredibly beautiful, by the way. It was really an extraordinary day. And I was in the company of some real experts. They knew where the tricky places in the trail were. They knew where the bolts were to tie in for a rappel. They were great at working with the inexperienced like me. It was they to whom I looked when I had a question or when I felt at all nervous. And then, finally, that final rappel down an enormous open chamber to the canyon floor, a hundred feet below. It kind of sneaks up on you, to tell the truth, and you wait in line for your turn, and you clip into the rope and lower yourself through a kind of partial ceiling down through the cathedral of stone, your voice echoing off these enormous cliffs. I hung back. I wanted to see a few people do it before I went to the edge myself. And one by one, my friends all disappeared. I could hear them laughing with exhilaration as they descended. And then, finally, my turn. The guides that I'd come to trust so thoroughly stood above the bolt from which hung the rope on which I'd descend. As I approached the edge, I told them that I wasn't going to look down. Rather, I was going to look directly at them (laughs) as I secured myself to the rope and I was going to keep looking at them as I began to lower myself. And that's what I did. Locked my eyes on my guides. And down I went while they held the rope. I was 20 or 30 feet down the rope, maybe, when I took my eyes off my guides and began to look around. Hanging there in that open space was indeed thrilling hollering out in exhilaration in that enormous chamber of rock was unforgettable. I'm so glad I had that experience. And I arrived on the canyon floor filled with the euphoria that comes with doing stuff like that. It wasn't the last time I'd ever do something like that. There's plenty of that kind of thing in my future too, I'm sure. And as I engage with stuff against which my phobias cry out, I'm always glad to have a good guide to talk me through it. Well, that's where Sheila Arnold's story took me. Where will her story take you? And who will you take along? It's great to have you with us, and I want to introduce you to another show from the BYU Radio family of podcasts. The show is called In Good Faith, and in this podcast, Stephen Cat Perry, the host, in each episode talks with a different person about that person's faith tradition. These guests talk about their relationship with the divine that will strengthen your faith, and Steve is a great listener. It's a podcast that helps you celebrate the power of faith and belief, a podcast on which you'll hear stories and accounts from believers of all kinds told in their own words. You can listen to In Good Faith wherever you hear our show. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, all kinds of places to listen to In Good Faith On Demand.
Such a pleasure to be with you today on the Apple Seed. Next up, we've got a storyteller named Paul Strickland from Kentucky with his story called Whale Ice Song. It was recorded live in the Appleseed studio. Here's Paul. So let's tell a family story, but this one is actually not of my ain't true and uncle faults. This is a, a, a side of my family, a different side of my family that doesn't exist. And... Uh, <laughs> I love telling this story. So here's the thing. My great-grandmother, as opposed to the three less remarkable ones, <laughs> my great-grandmother died long before the date of my birth, so it was an excused absence, but that's not the point. The point is that the thing is people have children very late in life in my family, so my great-grandmother was a long, long time ago. Like a long, like if you said the word portfolio to my great grandmother, she'd assume you talk about a seaside town with a harbor. Portfolio. If you said the word internet to my great grandmother, she'd assume you talk about what fish should do in a town called Portfolio. So the point is that in order to tell a story from her time that really resonates with us here, I'm gonna need your help. And I don't, I don't know how many people are actually here in this studio, but probably something like 21 people are here. I'm going to need the 21 of you on cue to help me make the sound of whale song. <laughs> here we go. I'll do it first. It goes like this. Here we go. Let's try it. Oh yeah, this is gonna go very well. <laughs> My great-grandmother lived thousands of miles north of anywhere reasonable in a town called Portfolio. And Portfolio was the kind of town that was so cold way up there that the ocean water there often froze. And my great-grandmother had this incredible skill, this gift, this intuition for finding whale song frozen in the ice. What would happen is whales would swim by. They would sing their whale song into the ocean water and then it would get captured in the ice like the world's coolest recording. My great-grandmother had this intuition, this skill. And I imagine she would swathe herself in leather and fur, and she'd go out with a leather bag and an axe. She'd find a place where she thought there was whale song in the ice, and then she would chop the ice up into chunks, and then she would take those chunks home to test them for whale song. Now, how do you test ice for whale song? It's actually a whole lot like life. You just got to be willing to lose a little bit of it to find out if it's worth anything in the first place at all. So what she would do is she would melt it just a tad. She'd take a stethoscope, she would heat it over a candle flame, and then she would touch a piece of ice with it. And the moment, the moment she heard those bellowed tones, she would take that ice and shove it down into a bucket full of snow to stop it from melting. Now, what were the uses of whale song ice? There were actually quite a few. People were very resourceful back in those times. But one of my favorite uses, my great-grandmother during tourist season, she, 
She would wave somebody down and ask for their palm, and they would come over and offer their palm. And my great-grandmother would take a sliver of that whale song ice, place it on their palm, and their body heat would melt the ice, and a little bit of whale song would come out. And my great-grandmother then, this was a tourist she was talking to, she would, she would dramatically listen to the whale song like she'd never heard it before. She would dramatically listen to the whale song and then she'd say something like, oh, it says always burn incense as opposed to nonsense. (laughs) And that was worth a couple of dollars, which was a lot of money back in that time. But the important use of whale song ice was a ritual. Elders in that village requested that their last breaths be accompanied by whale song. So whale song ice was really useful because that meant that sons and daughters, nieces and nephews, friends and family, loved ones could hold a piece of whale song ice next to someone's ear. And that whale song as it was emitted would accompany their final breaths. Problem was impurities began to mount up in the ocean water. And as impurities began to mount up in the ocean water, when the ocean water froze, those impurities were in there. And that made that ice incapable of holding on to something as delicate and beautiful as whale song. So when my great-grandmother mined the very last piece of whale song ice ever found five and a half years before her death, she knew that that ritual she had provided for so many other people, that beautiful tradition she had provided for so many people was something she would never get to take part in. She knew she had outlived her life's work. And on her deathbed, my great-grandmother lay there. And when she knew that it was time for her last breaths, there were so many people surrounding her. She was so beloved in her community. When it came time for her last breath, she asked everyone to leave. And one by one, people walked out of the cabin into the cold night and the door closed behind them. And my great-grandmother just lay there on her deathbed, listening to every one of her breaths because you never know which one's going to be the last one, do you? She just kept listening, knowing that it would be accompanied by nothing. She knew her last breath would not be accompanied by anything. But then she heard it. Because the people of Portfolio surrounded my great-grandmother's cabin, determined. All night long in shifts, those people sang the sound of whale song into the night, determined that my great-grandmother's last breaths would be accompanied with her final wish, determined that she would hear whale song. Because it turns out, friends, a community of people when they put their minds to it, can make things happen we don't even think are possible anymore. And 
yeah, it probably didn't sound anything like actual whale song. <laughs> but in 21 distinct, important ways, it was probably even better. Paul Strickland with Whale Ice Song. Our thanks go out to Sheila Arnold and Paul Strickland for their stories and to you for enjoying another season of The Apple Seed with us. We'll be back with another season of stories in just a few short weeks. In the meantime, we hope you'll share some of your own stories with the people you love because we believe that great stories can change your family's world. The Appleseed is produced by Wendy Folsom, Sam Payne, and Brian Tanner. Our audio engineers are Ashton Parkinson and Carly Wilson. The rest of the Appleseed team is Kelly Wehrmeister, Trent Horton, Evadane Hendricks, Miriam Arce, and Tristan Schetzel. A special thanks to the subscribers of our podcast who rate us or leave reviews. You help people find the show. We also love to receive emails at the Appleseed at BYU.edu. Your thoughts and comments help us to shape the future of the Appleseed. We're pleased and proud to be among the many podcasts produced by the BYU Radio family. And you can find episodes of the Appleseed wherever podcasts are found, on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne, and the whole team can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Appleseed.